This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Brina Garen, and you're listening to Hex Positive. Welcome, witches. This is episode nine of Hex Positive. I'm your host, Brina Garen, and this is part two of this month's dive into some seasonally appropriate witchy goodness, something I've been looking forward to since I started the show, something my blog followers know I have a lot of strong feelings about. That's right, it's time to talk about ghosts. Some more. And not just ghosts, but the lore surrounding them in the witch community, and to an extent how popular media and culture have influenced how we as witches deal with unwanted ethereal intruders. There's a lot to unpack there, so we're not going to do a super deep dive, but it definitely bears mentioning. If you haven't listened to part one from the beginning of the month, you may want to go back and check it out before listening to this episode. I had a really great chat with Jen, aka the Ouija Girl, about various modern paranormal myths and where those beliefs come from. I'm going to briefly rehash a few of them today, and then I'll be discussing some methods for dealing with hauntings as a witch if you happen to find yourself with unwanted ghostly intruders. Before we get started, just a quick reminder to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit my WordPress site if you want to buy some books, check out our sibling show BS Free Witchcraft, and make sure you go and show our sponsors some love. All the links are in the show notes. And by the by, Hex Positive just hit 10,000 downloads as of today. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. So whatever you're doing, thank you and keep it up. Speaking of reviews, make sure you send me those screenshotted reviews to be eligible for the Hex Positive Halloween giveaway. I've made up a brilliant little starter set suitable for any witch who wants to make their own travel spell kit, and I'm going to be giving it away to one lucky listener. All you have to do is post a review and rating on your favorite podcast platform, snap a quick screenshot, and send it over to me at brienicarron at gmail.com. If you've already left one, no problem. Just screenshot that and send it in. Uh, one entry per person, please. I'll select a random winner on Halloween night and announce the results on the Hex Positive Twitter feed. So make sure you're following at Hex underscore podcast on Twitter so you don't miss it. 
We also have a very special shout out this episode to a young up and coming witchling all the way out in New Zealand. This one goes out to Laura Perry from your awesome surfer dad, Chris. He wants you to know that he thinks you're amazing and super cool and that he's so proud of how strong you are and that he's there to support you no matter what. And speaking as someone who struggles with family issues related to her craft, I gotta tell you, Laura, that's a blessing. Those first years are really rough. You're going to encounter opposition, and it can be very frustrating. But if you feel it in your heart and in your bones that this is what you're meant to do, you believe in yourself and you stick with it. If you decide you want to be a witch, nobody, and I mean nobody, can take that away from you. So stay strong, stay safe, and stay curious, okay? And I want to join your dad in reminding you to always be yourself, think for yourself, and don't take shit from anyone. Chris, thanks for reaching out. And if either of you have any questions, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I'm always here. Now that we've all had our faith in humanity restored just a little bit, pardon me while I resurface from this ocean of feelings... In the words of Jakara Smith, I'm not crying. My eyes are taking a piss. <clears throat> okay, I'm good. Let's get into it. Penny, do the thing. No, I know you're having a hard time playing the theremin with your paws. Just push the button, okay? At a girl. Tis now the very witching time of night. When churchyards yawn, and hell itself breathes out contagion to this world. You ever notice how most ghost stories take place at night? Hardly any of them are like, it was broad daylight just after 2pm when suddenly... You see what I mean? If you're a witch, and even if you aren't, you've probably had the thought at least once when it's getting late and the house is dark... Maybe you're a little on edge. Am I here alone? Is something here with me? And furthermore, is it here because my condo is built on some ancient burial ground? Or maybe because of that game I tried from an internet meme? Or maybe it's attracted to me because I'm a witch and therefore more in tune with the spirit world. You remember the salt shaker from episode 3? To paraphrase Poltergeist 2, it's back! So, here's the thing. There's a lot of talk that floats around the witchcraft community that talks about things like spirit boards and mirror games and basically treats ghosts like a constantly looming threat. Any slip in protocol will summon demonic spirits, and I trust you can hear just how heavy those air quotes are, and it'll completely ruin your life, right? Nope. In the last episode, we talked a lot about modern paranormal myths and some of the presumptions that we have about ghosts and spirits, both in relation to mundane matters and in relation to our existence as witches. So, quick recap. Ouija boards are party games, not portals to hell. We have the 1973 hubbub surrounding The Exorcist to thank for that. You can use them for simple spirit communication, but that's about it. 
Some spirits will mess with you, but all you have to do is say goodbye and effectively hang up. Zozo is not a real demon. 3 a.m. is not the witching hour. It's midnight, always has been. Devil's hour is not a thing. Demonic hauntings happen, but they're nowhere near as prevalent as TV shows and movies would have you believe. And we have the Warrens to thank for that, along with a slew of other claptrap they made up to sell books and lecture tours. The ghost hunter guys you see on TV are rude, and provocation is not a good way of talking to ghosts. You wouldn't like it if someone yelled at you. Neither do dead people. Creatures and entities from native folklore like skinwalkers and wendigo are not cryptids, nor are they spirits that could be haunting your home or property, and the way they get treated like monster of the week fodder for creepypastas is really disrespectful, so don't do that. Also, most of the spirit games you find on the internet are just that. They're games. They're party games. The actual risk associated with them is pretty low, and basic precautions are usually enough to cover your butt. Being a witch and practicing witchcraft, contrary to what some popular TV shows would have us believe, does not turn you into a magnet for ghostly botherance. It doesn't summon demons into your home, it doesn't automatically open you up to possession or hauntings, and it doesn't require you to ghost whisper to every wayward soul you come across. The pervasiveness of the idea that witches are more prone to encountering or summoning or attracting spirits without conscious effort is basically leftover satanic panic superstition, and modern superstitions related to the paranormal don't really help matters. All this being said, ghosts and hauntings are definitely real, and they definitely happen. I can speak to that from personal experience. They just don't always happen the way you see on television and in the movies. Kind of like witchcraft. As I'm so fond of telling people, this is not a whoops, I summon legions of the undead situation. There are no troops of spirit goblins sitting around waiting for you to say your right words by accident so they can come in and steal the baby and put a ghostly goblin king in your bay window to do some spooky-ooky contact juggling. Doesn't happen. Now, I know there are plenty of witches who do spirit work on purpose, and they have their own sets of rules and ideas about how things work, how to communicate with spirits, develop relationships, work in the astral plane, and so forth. But we're not going to go into that all day. What we're going to talk about today is what to do if you don't want ghosts and spirits in your house. Because sometimes a witch just can't be bothered, and I am one of those witches. I spent part of my teenage years living in a haunted house. Can't say I recommend the experience. But it did lead to a fascination with ghosts and paranormal phenomena, and I've done a lot of research on the subject, both inside and outside the context of witchcraft. I used to engage in spirit work in my early years of practice, but nowadays, it's pretty much restricted to knowing how to act in haunted places and recognizing when spirits are present. 
plus kicking their ethereal asses out of my home when and if they happen to show up. Some of my longtime followers may recall an article I wrote a number of years ago entitled Dealing with Dead People. I'm bringing back a lot of that information for this episode with, as always, a few updates. Now, we're going to discuss a lot of terms in this episode, so I want to make the main ones clear right up top. First, types of ghosts and hauntings. For the purposes of this episode, we're going to focus on some basics. We'll start with three basic types of hauntings. You've got intelligent hauntings, residual hauntings, and hauntings by non-human entities. Intelligent hauntings are hauntings where part or all of the activity is in some way interactive with the living, whether it's residents or employees or visitors or investigators, somebody somewhere along the way will have had an intelligent response from whatever entity is present in the space. This can be anything from objects moving to knocking sounds in response to questions or vocalizations or apparitions that interact with or react to their environment or the people in it. There's a lot of range, but the idea is that there is some reaction to external stimulus which presents itself in a fashion that indicates there's some consciousness involved. Residual hauntings, by contrast, are just recordings. Whether you believe it's a leftover thought form or an imprint or a stone tape of sorts, it's a haunting where the activity does not directly interact with the living. It just happens. Sometimes it presents like the same thing happening over and over again in the same way, like an apparition walking across a room without seeming to notice the furniture or the people in the room. Sometimes it's a stain that won't wash out, or a door that won't stay closed, or footsteps that come down the stairs at the same time every night. Stuff like that. You see this a lot in older buildings and historic sites. Whatever's there, it probably won't react to what you're doing or answer questions or interact with the living. It's just previous life activity being replayed over and over. Whether it's a ghost or a psychic imprint or an accidental intersection of dimensions is unclear, but they happen. These are generally the least troubling of the three types of hauntings. And then you've got non-human hauntings. These are the hauntings where the impetus behind them is not residual energy and it's not a human spirit. It's either something that was never living or just something that's not human. There is some overlap with intelligent hauntings here, but this is where you see things like poltergeists, elemental spirits, and yep, demons. I hesitate to include fairies in this category because a lot of people draw a really sharp contrast between phenomena associated with fairies and, you know, ghosts, as in dead people. But it does bear mentioning that some of the activity that presents with fairy mischief 
objects getting moved around, things going missing, strange sounds, a run of bad luck. It sounds a lot like the activity associated with poltergeists. So fairy activity, not a haunting in the same sense as you'd have with ghosts, but sometimes it can present like one. I do want to emphasize that I'm calling this category non-human hauntings very much on purpose. There's this unfortunate knee-jerk reaction where people just want to slap the demonic label on any non-human entity or any kind of haunting where things are aggressive or seem malevolent. But that's not always the case, since, as my esteemed colleague Trey Dorn is so fond of saying, ghosts are dicks. Dead people can be assholes, too. Demons do not have a monopoly on bad behavior. And yes, the prevalence of this idea of demonic hauntings is another stereotype we have to contend with thanks to the Warrens. Insert sound of salt shaker here. I also want to note real quick that even though demonic hauntings do happen, it is never going to be because a bad person died and became a demon. That's not a thing. Dead people are dead people. Demons are demons. They are not human. They never were human. And humans cannot become demons after death. They can, however, exhibit their own brand of nasty behavior. So those are your basic hauntings. Within those types, there are a handful of different types of ghosts and entities that you're likely to encounter. This is not exhaustive. These are just the most common ones. An apparition is a ghost that appears in some recognizable form. Usually it's human or human-shaped or a shadow or a misty figure, something like that. It can be human or animal, depending on what the spirit is. This is the typical thing that you'd point to and go, oh my gosh, that's a ghost. Apparitions can be intelligent or residual, interactive or non-interactive. It all depends on the context in which they appear. Poltergeists are ghosts or hauntings, more accurately, that are characterized by noises and movement. The word in German literally means noisy spirit. Typically, a poltergeist haunting takes the form of knocking or banging, footsteps, scratching noises, disembodied voices, objects being moved or thrown, and sometimes an aggressive physical interaction with living people. This gets mistaken for demonic hauntings a lot. But it's important to note that poltergeists stem from psychokinetic phenomena that is generally caused by or centered around a living person, often a child or a teenager. It can also spontaneously manifest in a household where there is extreme stress or extreme negativity, if there is someone who is a suitable conduit to manifest that energy. This generally doesn't happen through a conscious effort, but they're more like a battery, let's say. There's also shadow people. I think most everyone's heard of these two. Shadow people are just that. They're shadows that look and act solid. 
Sometimes they're just solid black or void colored. Sometimes they have glowing eyes. It varies from place to place. These things are generally not fun to encounter. They're usually intelligent, and they tend to move in odd ways. Sure, they walk and run, which can be very startling, but they also crawl, and there is something so wrong about that. They're usually a sign of something negative, whether it's the general tone of the haunting or stress or negative emotions lingering at the site. And they're also a feature in a lot of sleep paralysis stories, which is something you'll want to keep in mind if you have trouble sleeping. And of course, there are those non-human entities we talked about. Poltergeists and shadow people kind of fall into this category since they're not always, at their core, the spirit of a dead person. Non-human entities, like I mentioned before, can also include demons, angels, elemental spirits, tricksters, fairies, and so on. For today, we're mostly going to focus on hauntings caused by human spirits, the formerly living. Now, it's important to remember that not all hauntings are location-based. They're not always tied to a building or a site or a plot of land. Sometimes they're attached to objects or to people. I've heard a handful of stories about hauntings attached to animals as well. It really happens most often where there's some kind of strong emotional connection or unfinished business or just someone who isn't ready to be dead yet. Sometimes people just get stuck especially if they're confused or very young, or if death came very suddenly. Like in The Sixth Sense, they don't know they're dead. Sometimes that happens. And sometimes spirits are just passing through. If they're not tied to anything in particular, they may just wander into your home at random. Sometimes they cause problems, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just pass right on by and keep going, and you can wave at them as they go. Some witches are okay with this. Some witches even try to help ghosts find their way. Me, I had my Jennifer Love Hewitt phase, and it didn't go so well. So, now the entirety of my grimoire chapter on ghosts is marked by a big heading that reads, Get out of my house, you wispy motherfuckers! And that is what I'm going to be sharing with you today. Cleansing warding, banishing, the wakes. Now, there is one thing I'm not going to be teaching you today that bears mentioning. Exorcism. And that is because I am neither Catholic nor clergy. The rite of exorcism is very specifically a Catholic ceremony. If anyone outside Catholicism, and that includes other flavors of Christianity, claims they're performing an exorcism, what they're doing is a very strong form of faith-based banishing in an attempt to remove what they see as a spirit possession. We call it an exorcism in this context because that's the word we have for this process, but it is not the same thing as the Catholic Rite. Official applications of the Rite of Exorcism have to be sanctioned by the Vatican and performed by a specially trained member of the clergy. 
There are plenty of petitions every year, but very few actually get all the way through the psychological evaluations and the various vetting processes to get the right sanctioned and performed. Say what you will about the Catholic Church, at least they do some vetting somewhere. So we'll be covering banishings and spirit removal, but not full-blown Catholic exorcisms, just to clarify. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. This episode is brought to you by Portland Button Works. Do you like buttons? Of course you do. Have you ever had a great idea for one, but just been like, darn it, if only I had the resources and equipment. Well, fret no more. Portland Buttonworks is just what you need. Portland Buttonworks creates custom pinback buttons in four different sizes, plus magnets, hand mirrors, and bottle openers. Download their templates and create your own designs, or use their Design-O-Matic for quick formatting. You can order just a few custom items for yourself or as gifts, or order in bulk for merch, table sales, or your own shop. And they are quick. The turnaround time for properly formatted submissions is one to three business days for most orders under 1,000 pieces. That is lightning fast. I've been getting buttons from Portland Button Works for years, and their quality is always top of the line. Ever wonder where the hex positive buttons came from? Well, now you know. And once you're done making your buttons, make sure you visit the PBW Witch Shop for a thoughtfully curated selection of witchcraft, magic, and occult-related zines. They've got books, buttons, tarot cards, and more. The collection has a refreshing emphasis on magic that relates to traditional and folkloric witchcraft, chaos magic, secular witchcraft, magical plants and herbs, queer witchcraft, politics and social justice witchcraft, and other non-Wiccan magic. There's a good chance they have exactly what you're looking for. Visit the main Buttonworks at portlandbuttonworks.com and check out the Witch Shop and Zine Distro at pbwwitchshop.com. Help support small business and get your buttons from Portland Buttonworks. Fighting fascism one button at a time since 2012. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And now, back to the show. The first step in getting rid of troublesome spirits is rather like pest control. Prevent them from entering your home in the first place. To that end, you'll want to invest some time and effort in a strong series of wards and household protections. And personal protections. For some witches, this can be accomplished through energy work or visualization or with talismans. But if you're like me, you'll be perusing the produce section, the seasonings aisle, and the craft store for material components. A simple charm bag or spell jar is a good place to start. You can fill them with herbs associated with warding and protection, set them up in your room or near your thresholds, maybe bury one under the doorstep for good measure, and you're good to go. 
And yes, one of my go-to components for such things is that good old darling of the supernatural fandom, salt. Salt has a purifying and barrier-like effect in protective applications, and it's fairly easy and inexpensive to obtain. Oh, and don't fret in the spice aisle over whether to get that grinder of fancy sea salt or the canister of Morton's. Table salt works just fine. Just make sure you don't sprinkle it on bare ground unless you're working indoors. It can and will destroy your lawn and your garden. Other warding and banishing herbs you can find in the spice aisle include anise, black pepper, basil, bay leaf, cayenne powder, chili powder, cloves, cumin, curry powder, garlic, oregano, rosemary, sage, and thyme. If you're willing to pop over to the produce section, there are a few other things you can pick up to help you out. Apples, the seeds specifically, coconuts, you'll want the shell in two halves, whole garlic, leeks, lemons, oranges, onions, peppers, and peaches. For peaches, you really just need the pit. Using these super simple ingredients, you can put together some pretty badass household protection charms, or property wards, or whatever suits you best. My preferred base blend for any home protection charm includes basil, bay leaves, rosemary, green sage, and salt. If the situation calls for it, I may add other things like angelica root, white oak bark, witch hazel, juniper, cedar tips, or vervain. It all depends on the circumstances and what I feel is necessary. And I do encourage you to customize your charms as you see fit. Every home and every witch is going to need something just a little bit different, so use your judgment and trust that intuition. A little line of salt across a threshold or in a window well can help too. You don't need to go overboard, a simple sprinkle will suffice. Rosemary and lemon can be added to floor washes to keep things cleansed, not to mention smelling fresh. A string of garlic cloves or chili peppers, hi Penny, a string of garlic cloves or chili peppers or a bundle of dried herbs hanging in the kitchen pulls double duty as seasoning storage and a protective charm. Of course, no system is foolproof and sometimes troublesome entities may slip by your defenses that's when it might be time for stronger measures. So let's talk about those hauntings again, just for a second. For those who deal with the dead on a semi-regular basis, whether by choice or by chance, the phenomenon of being visited or followed home is probably not too unfamiliar. For those who don't engage in spirit work or who aren't familiar with the paranormal, the experience is a good deal more unsettling. Either way, one of three things usually happens. One, the entity is pleasant to have around, causes little to no trouble, and is easy to live with, so the living occupants have no problem with it staying. Two, there is some conflict, usually in the form of startling apparitions, noises in the night, or objects moving on their own, but nothing is severe enough to cause alarm 
Or alternatively, the living occupants do not know how to get rid of the entity, so they either grin and bear it or move out. Three. Yes, Penny, I'm getting to it. Three. People or animals are harmed. There is large-scale destruction, verbal or physical threats are made, or possession of some kind occurs. When this happens, it's time to tell the entity to kindly get the blithering blue heck out of your home. But how do you know you're being haunted? There are the obvious signs. Apparitions, objects moving on their own, mysterious sounds or smells with no apparent source, that sort of thing. And there are more subtle ones, which could just as easily be everyday happenings that just don't have an immediately apparent explanation. The important thing is to use your head. Always look for a rational explanation first. And if you can't find one, then consider the possibility of a haunting or something else that's paranormal. And even if you're not sure, you can always put up protections and cleanse the place if it'll make you feel better. There's no harm in that. For the purposes of this discussion, let's assume that you've already made the determination that there is something in your house and now you're preparing to deal with it. About nine times out of ten, a ghost that is firmly shown the door will oblige you by leaving. So long as you're strong and stand your ground and don't get hysterical or issue a challenge, you should be fine. Never say get out or else or any permutation thereof. Anything that is remotely confrontational will see that as a challenge and then shit can get real in a hurry. I mean, provocation is bad policy to begin with and very few people, living or dead, are going to react well to that. Look at it, you, ghost hunting shows. A nice firm, this is my home and I don't have time for your bullshit, works well. Surprisingly well. So does, I didn't invite you and it's time for you to leave. This is especially effective if you work some kind of clause into your home protection wards where nothing and no one may enter except with permission from someone who lives there. It's not always easy to enforce, but it does cut down on visitation from wandering spirits. Cleansing the home is like a firm but polite way of reinforcing this statement. This can involve things like lighting candles, drawing protective sigils, saining the rooms and doorways with blessed water or herbal potions, or placing crystals or talismans around your home. You can also cleanse with sound by ringing a bell throughout the house or using your voice. Or if you don't have any of these things to hand, you can just clean with intent. Start scrubbing and tidying and forcefully will the spirit out of your home along with the dirt and grime. Any cleansing should immediately be followed up with a setting or reinforcement of any threshold barriers or protection spells you have in place, even if it's something as simple as a line of salt across your doorway. If you have an ongoing problem, you can place charms or perform regular cleansings wherever the activity is strongest. 
For example, if you're getting a lot of activity in your bedroom and it's not the fun kind, you might put a protective charm, say, under your mattress. You could also hang it from your bedpost or the doorknob or place it over the lintel of the door, that big crossbar at the top. Be aware that you may just be pushing the entity into another room or space at times, so periodic cleansing of the whole home may be called for, depending on what you're dealing with. Many places do just fine with a single strong set of wards, but you don't have to limit yourself to that. Feel free to ward as much as you want. There is nothing wrong with layers upon layers of magical protection. If you don't think that just warding your threshold or your home at large is going to be enough, ward the rooms inside too. Ward your bedroom, your workspace, your living room, wherever you feel like it's needed. And you can go even further and ward things inside those rooms. For example, I always ward the mirrors and the closets in my bedroom and bathroom. Or if someone's having trouble sleeping, I'll ward the bed itself. Use as much or as little as you feel is needed, but there is no such thing as too much protection. Lots of people, pagan and otherwise, will also recommend some form of smoke cleansing. Yes, it is called smoke cleansing or reekening, not smudging. And on this note, we need to pause for a moment and talk about white sage. Honestly, most of you probably saw this coming. I know we've all heard that white sage is far and away the best thing for smoke cleansing, especially when it comes to ghosts, but that's something that we need to move away from as practitioners. This particular herb is directly associated with sacred ceremonies for various Native American and First Nation peoples from Mexico all the way up through Canada. It's become gentrified and commodified for general market use thanks to the New Age movement, and yes, because of pagan and witchcraft revivals. But both the use of the term smudging and the herb itself outside of the ceremonies they belong to is cultural appropriation. And we've had requests to cease the out-of-context use of the practice from members of the Dakota, Catawba, Cree, and Chippewa nations, among others. Remember how I said back in episode four that I was going to keep bringing cultural appropriation up because it's a problem? Case in point. Now, before anyone starts whinging about how burning herbs is a common practice across many cultures, yes! Yes, yes it is. But commonality across cultures does not mean that all of those practices are free for the taking. We're talking about one plant and one ceremony here, not the baseline practice itself. And yes, the distinction does matter because it's not in any way appropriate for us to be cherry-picking these things 
because they seem spiritual and exotic when the people to whom the practices actually belong were banned from performing their sacred ceremonies for decades and have only recently been able to pick them back up again. Again, I am not the voice of authority on this, but I am reminding you to listen to indigenous voices because even keeping in mind that no culture is a monolith, it's their word on this that counts. I'm including some links to the articles in the show notes, and I highly suggest that you read them. There are open culture terms for this practice. Reekening is an Anglo-Saxon word that means to smoke or emanate. The word reek used to have this same connotation. This word is free for anyone to use. So is smoke cleansing as a generic term for the practice overall. And if you didn't know this, no, it doesn't make you a bad witch or a bad person, if you weren't aware. What's common knowledge to some may not be common to everyone. And we need to remember to be compassionate and understanding to each other and to work to fill and correct knowledge gaps in a kind fashion rather than shaming people for things they might not know. The important thing is to educate each other and to absorb and assimilate new information and make responsible choices moving forward. If you want to use burning herbs to cleanse your space, that's completely fine. Just don't call it smudging and don't use white sage. Don't buy it from New Age stores. Don't get it off Amazon. Don't get it from whimsical free spirit meditation kits. I should include a caveat. If you are going to buy it for personal or familial reasons, please look up a Native American or First Nation supplier and get your sage from them. That way, it benefits the people to whom it belongs, and we can have some more assurance that maybe it's been ethically and responsibly harvested. Or you can find an alternative. Fortunately, there are plenty of herbs you can use which are just as effective, some of which you can grow pretty easily right in your own garden. Here's a short list of my go-to white sage alternatives. Green sage, of course, common sage, or purple sage, pretty much any other kind of sage. Rosemary, basil, bay leaf, thyme, lavender, peppermint, cedar tips, and juniper. Most of these are pretty easy to either grow or purchase. If you need something with a little more oomph, you might try some of those herbs I mentioned earlier, angelica root, white oak, witch hazel, vervain, and so on. The best smokestick I ever made had a core of rosemary and dried lavender and peppermint stems wrapped up in sweet and purple basil and broadleaf green sage. Little drop of cedar oil on the end, light it up, and that thing was like bear mace for ghosts. If you can't find what you need locally, I highly recommend Star West Botanicals and Mountain Rose Herbs for online shopping. Both are very reputable companies with good products at fair prices and a fair amount of fair trade items as well. 
I've been getting my herbs from Star West for years, and I know a number of witch shops and botanical suppliers who do as well. And of course, if you're cleansing with smoke, always make sure you're ventilating properly and take all precautions to ensure fire safety. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. This episode is brought to you by Crowsbone. With the world in turmoil and all of us doing our best to ride out the storm, there's never been a more important time to support small business. To that end, I'd like to introduce you to Crowsbone. Run by the Weird Sisters, Crowsbone is a family-owned business with 20 years of experience in the study and practice of magic. The shop's been closed for a while due to the pandemic, but they're back and better than ever. Their selection combines carefully curated wholesale goods, unique secondhand finds, and handcrafted items from their home base. Peruse their excellent selection of books, home decor, altar supplies, and so much more. Make sure you check out their seasonal subscription packages and mystery boxes, as well as their range of personalized services and readings. And now is the perfect time to do it, because the good people at Crowsbone are offering my listeners a 15% discount on their products and services. Just use the code HEXPOSITIVE at checkout. This offer excludes subscriptions. Refresh your witchcraft supplies and help support small business while you're at it. Visit www.crowsbone.com and remember to use the code HEXPOSITIVE at checkout to get 15% off your order. Crowsbone, to thine own self be true. Hello. Would you like to drink cocktails and talk about poison? Or drink poison and talk about cocktails? Then welcome to The Poisoner's Cabinet, a weekly podcast mixing true crime, historic mysteries, a dash of comedy, and lots of lovely libations for your listening pleasure. Join us for a drink as we tell the story of a different deadly poisoner each week. We always start by whipping up a cocktail inspired by the tale that we tell. Sounds delicious. Ooh, so maybe an amaretto sour for a cyanide poisoning? Long Island iced tea for the teacup poisoner. Chicken for William Palmer? What? Nothing. Join Nick and Sinead every Friday inside the Poisoner's Cabinet as we look at vicious Victorians, inheritance powders, and crimes of poisonous passion. Follow us at the Poisoner's Cabinet on social media. Subscribe and share on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, your loved ones are trying to kill you. Since we're all heartily fed up with Amazon right about now, I've decided to open a small online witch shop on my WordPress. You can pick up copies of Grove Daughter Witchery, The Sisters Grimoire, and Pestlework, or shop for witchy goodies like banishing powder, witch web kits, and witchy buttons. You might even get a special surprise or two with your order. Go to brainagarin.wordpress.com shop to place your order today. And now, back to the show. Right, we were talking about ghosts about a page and a half ago. Back to the hauntings. It's a good idea to determine exactly what level of haunting you're dealing with in order to determine an appropriate response. I have my own scale, but you should feel free to make your own. The more severe and threatening the activity, the stronger your response needs to be. For example... Here's how I break things down on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being meh and 10 being oh shit. 
One is, is that a cold spot or maybe somebody left a window open? A two is, I think I left that particular door closed. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, whatever. Three, I think something creepy is watching me, but there's nothing there. But so much for taking that shower. Uh, four is something moved in the corner of my vision and this is no longer funny. Five is, sorry, who just called my name? No one? Oh, great. Six is, hey, loud footsteps on the stairs. My roommate is back. Wait, no, fuck. Seven, something is growling and it is not the dog. I repeat, it is not the dog. Eight is, okay, that shadowy thing at the end of the hallway should not be there. Nine is a nice hearty who the fuck just scratched me. And ten is, it's the first five minutes of an episode of Supernatural, and I'm probably about to die. Starting around level four, I'll do some preventative cleansing. Right around level six, I reach for the salt. Anything above a seven, and it's time for the big guns. Fortunately, nothing worse than a five has happened in my house in a very long time, knock on wood, and I intend to keep it that way. Now then, on to some simple banishing methods. Make a charm bag, bottle, or ornament like we talked about before. Hang it by the front door or wherever you feel it is needed, and make sure that you pack it with the strongest banishing and protection herbs that you can get your hands on. Smoke cleanse with a bundle of dried herbs and fan the smoke through every room. Open the windows to vent the smoke, but close them directly after the room is clear, or line them with salt to keep things from getting back in while you air the room out. And mind you, only use smoke cleansing if you're in a situation where it's safe to have smoke and fire around. If you're in a dorm or a shared living situation with someone who can't tolerate smoke, do not do this. You can simmer some rosemary, lemon slices, and mint in water for a few minutes, and then use this concoction to spray the corners of every room in your home. Technically, this is more a cleansing than a banishing, but it really does help to get things moving. Plus, it makes the place smell nice. Light a candle in every room, either a wax one or an LED, or just go around and turn all of the lights on. Go through your home methodically and bring light into every space until there's nowhere left for the intruding spirit to hide. Make sure you accompany this with firmly spoken commands for the thing to leave. That's actually a good policy with any banishing. Or you can just walk through the house and metaphysically piss in all the corners if you want. This can be done with spoken words or the ringing of a bell or simply with energy work if you can throw plenty of pepper into it. The most important thing, whichever method you choose, is to own the space. This is your home. Defend it. Your wards and banishings are only as strong as your determination to hold them. Again, don't directly challenge or threaten if you can possibly help it. But if you feel a need to say, you're not welcome and you're going to leave on your own or off the end of my boot, but it's happening, then by all means do it. 
a spoken charm that I use for reclaiming my space and letting the ghosties know they're not welcome runs something like this. This is my home and only the living may dwell here. You are uninvited. You are not welcome. I command you to leave this place doing no harm or mischief to any in the going. Go now to that place which is meant for you and never return here again. Now, keep in mind that you can call on your ancestors, your deities, whomever you feel is appropriate if you feel like you need backup. If you need or want mortal help, call on some friends or family or maybe a colleague to help you clear out your home. Or if you feel like this is all getting way over your head, contact an expert in the field or a member of your religious community of choice to come in and handle the matter for you. You will have to still be involved because it is your home, but having an expert on site can be very useful. Be aware that multiple cleansings may be needed if the first one doesn't stick or if the entity you're dealing with is particularly stubborn or malevolent, or, you know, just a jerk. Don't be afraid to reach out for help. Sometimes you do need a team effort to get the job done. It's worth mentioning that even with outside help, if you don't put your foot down and claim your space and take steps to keep it safe on your own, there is a possibility that whatever is haunting your home might return. Which brings us to the part I like to call, and stay out. Warding your home after cleansing or banishing is essential. Once you're done kicking ethereal butts out of your house, you'll need to lock the doors, in a manner of speaking. Any of the warding methods discussed in this episode are acceptable at this juncture, Put up new charms, salt the doorways, draw new sigils, whatever it is you want to do in order to keep the banished entity or entities from coming back. Refresh your wards and your protections regularly, especially if you choose to engage in spirit work or ghost hunting, or if your home seems like a magnet for spirit activity. Remember, witchcraft on its own does not attract ghosts and spirits, but if you're engaging with them voluntarily on some level, there's always a chance that something might overstay its welcome or follow you home. Something to note real quick here, these methods can be a preventative, and they may help to mitigate or end active intelligent hauntings. Nothing I've talked about here today is going to do much for a residual haunting. It might lessen the frequency or the intensity of the activity, but since that kind of a haunting is essentially a tape on a loop, it's difficult to disrupt or remove it. In those instances, you may want to see if you can reach out to someone who does medium work or attempt communication yourself if you're prepared to do so, and see if the entity or entities can be firmly but politely encouraged to move on, or at least to quietly coexist. The best thing to do if you just want to avoid this altogether is to ward the crap out of your living space. That way, even if you go ghost hunting every night, 
even if you do spirit work, even if you play with Ouija boards, even if you live in a historic area with lots of traffic, there's a better chance that you can keep ghostly pests from entering in the first place. You can decide when and if anything's allowed to enter if you want to do deliberate spirit communication, and you can decisively shut the door after them when your session is finished. If you're going to be doing spirit work, it's highly unlikely that you'll summon anything truly dangerous, but you might get something annoying. Basic rule, cover your ass, always close the doors you open, and don't call up anything unless you're sure you can put it down again. If there's a person in your home who might be a source for a poltergeist, See what you can do about getting them into therapy. Sometimes having an emotional outlet can mitigate that buildup and lead to a downgrade in psychokinetic activity. There are wonderful things being done with online counseling these days for everything from everyday stress to depression, pretty much anything you can think of. If you're dealing with a known quantity, malevolent entity, be aware that attempts to remove it may make things worse, at least temporarily. If things get to a level where it's just unbearable or where your safety or the safety of others in the home is in danger, you really need to consider the possibility of making other living arrangements, whether it's staying with someone else for a little while or maybe starting the process of finding a new home. I know this isn't always feasible, especially with the way things are right now with the pandemic and the economy and the fact that, you know, we're all broke. But you know those horror movie families that stay in a haunted house even when they could leave and don't and things just get worse and worse? Don't be that family. And one last thing, ghost hunting. If you're going on a ghost tour or poking around a supposedly haunted site, make sure you cover your butt. If you have any personal protections, make sure they're punched up before you go. When you leave, you may want to do a little cleansing before you go home. I actually have two powder recipes that work really, really well for this. My banishing powder, which I still swear by, and Dead Man's Dust. The recipes for both of these are available in pestle work, and I have vials of them available in my WordPress shops. I'll stick the links in the show notes. The recipe for banishing powder is also available for free back in the June 2020 episode of Witch Ways, and the recipe for Dead Man's Dust is available as a bonus over on my Patreon. Don't worry, it doesn't contain any actual human remains. Also, when you're out looking for ghosts, here's a real basic suggestion. Don't yell at the ghosts. Please. It's not nice, it's not polite, and it's not going to have the effect that you think it will. You're either going to get nothing at all because the spirits are scared away or take offense, or something might take a swing at you because you've pissed it off. It's just not good form, no matter what you've seen on TV, so just please don't do it. If you're going to talk to ghosts, just talk to them, like you'd talk to any regular living person. Be polite, or at least civil, you're bound to get a much better response that way. And, of course, as always, be civil right up until the point where things get 
uncivil. So there you have it. Ward your home, claim your space, be smart with your spirit work, take no shit from ghostly assholes, and don't be afraid to reach out for help. Like I said at the top of the episode, my spirit work days are well behind me, but if you have any further questions about ghosts or hauntings, I highly recommend contacting our guest host, Jen, from the previous episode. She's available over at theweejagirl.tumblr.com, and as we've heard, she's very knowledgeable and doesn't mind answering questions. Just be aware that around Halloween, she's also very busy. I hope you're all enjoying this lovely Samhain season. Tune in next week for our Listener Ghost Stories bonus episode as we count down the days to this year's full moon Halloween night. Hope you've got your cauldrons ready. If you've got something to manifest, now's the time. Until then, I'm Brie Nagarin, reminding you to stay safe, keep wearing your mask, and maybe don't investigate that weird noise in the basement. Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Check out everything they have to offer, including our sibling podcast, BS Free Witchcraft, over at nerdandtie.com. Intro and outro music by Kevin McLeod. For all the latest updates, follow at hex underscore podcast on Twitter. You can also follow me at at Brina Garin on Twitter and Instagram. For more information on my books, you can check out my WordPress and my Amazon author page. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, always practice safe hex. Hex positive.